1: I'm Jeff Goldfarb, deputy editor of Breaking Views. I'm based in Hong Kong, where supervoting stock is one of the hottest topics of conversation in financial circles. The city has been licking its wounds ever since Alibaba, the $500 billion Chinese tech titan, picked New York to host its initial public offering a few years ago. Dozens of Alibaba's Chinese tech compatriots also have chosen to list their stock in the Big Apple, where a wider array of corporate governance standards is accepted. The Fragrant Harbor's primary bourse wants to win back some of those tech darlings. It also wants to woo a stampede of Chinese unicorns or private firms valued at more than a billion dollars, which are galloping toward public markets. To do so, Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing has begun drafting rule changes that would allow software, AI, and other startups to list with dual-class share structures that enable founders to keep a firm grip on their companies while limiting the cloud of new investors. The proposal and its implications for entrepreneurs, markets, and investors sparked a robust debate at a recent event hosted by Breaking Views at our Hong Kong headquarters as part of a series of events around the world to launch our predictions book for 2018 entitled Froth and Frustration. Joining me to discuss the easing of Hong Kong's listing standards was Alan Lam, an investment banker who runs the tech business for Credit Suisse across Asia Pacific, Prue Bennett, who spearheads investor stewardship in the region for BlackRock, the custodian of $6 trillion of investor money. Janice Lee, who runs PCCW Media, an entertainment empire that includes pay TV and a Netflix-like streaming service. And Li Hong-Wong, managing director at the private equity firm Bain Capital, which owns a range of companies in China and beyond. Though I think it's a sad capitulation by the Hong Kong market, the views in the group were mixed. Alan thinks it'll be good for business, while Prue worries about the fate of the one-share-one-vote principle her firm endorses. Janice sees some benefits for startups, while Hong expressed some concerns about the long-term effects of such a decision. Give a listen to the conversation. Um, I want to turn to um, a subject that probably affects all of you in in some way or another, and probably a lot of people in this room as well, which is the the Hong Kong Stock Exchange is on its way to sort of opening its doors to companies with multiple classes of stock. This has been, obviously, a long-standing issue, one made um, particularly prominent by the listing of Alibaba, although they don't have a dual-class share, was a, sort of a pivotal point. Um, and this you know, this allows founders to keep a pretty firm grip on their company. Um, in the view of a lot of Breaking Views columnists, gives short shrift to quite a few new investors. Um, but Alan, I wonder, you know, A, do you, do, you, do you think that's gonna happen? It looks like it's kind of pretty uh-huh. well in truck. Yeah. And then what, what do you think the impact will be?
2: Yeah, from, from, from our discussions with various people, it sounds like this is kind of, you know, going to happen. Uh, question is when. I think, I mean, Charles Lee has been out there saying that they expect the first dual listing, dual class listing, to be, happen in June, July timeframe. So, so I think you know, in his mind, there's already a time that is set for the first listing already, um, and and certainly, I think. I mean, first of all, it helps the uh, the stock price of Hong Kong Stock Exchange which has been going up every day. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm a happy shareholder, <laughs> but, uh, but I think at the same time, I think it's good for the market because, I mean, a lot of the Chinese issuers in the past were, I mean, suffering from a lack of choice, right? They only had one exchange to go to or one, one, one listing venue to go to, which is, you know, the U.S., whether it's NYC or NASDAQ. Uh, I think that the, uh, I think that in our dialogues with a lot of issuers, uh, we actually been having a lot more dialogues in terms of whether we go for U.S. or whether we go for Hong Kong listings, in the past, you know, past month or two, and, and, and in fact, I think the market has certainly been more receptive to TMT stocks in Hong Kong in general. Looking at the performance of some of the stocks that were listed last year, Zhongan, China Literature, etc. cetera. So, so I think market. First of all, markets are more receptive to TMT stocks as a as a as a whole. So the demand is there. Now I think that the the door is open for the supply to come as well. So. So I, I do see that there will be uh, a wave of companies uh, that will go public in Hong Kong uh, under this uh, dual class mechanism. And I think that it's is, is good for the stock exchange to impose some limitations in terms of company with a certain revenue scale or market cap before you can use that, uh, adopt this mechanism, which I think is a good thing because otherwise you will see a, sl- a lot of smaller companies coming out, which won't necessarily be good uh, for the market. So. So I think um, uh, I think uh, the that, that stage is set, I think, for, 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 uh, for companies to, to to list in Hong Kong. And in fact, I think not only do we have a lot of dialogues with the startup companies that wants to list in Hong Kong under this dual structure, uh, a lot of the companies that previously went private, uh, they were going to go back to the Asia market and now also thinking whether Hong Kong is a likely venue uh, 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 for, for, for listing. So. So I think that you probably see a couple of companies that have gone private in the U.S. now instead of going back to the Asia market as most people predict them, that they they would do, now they might pursue a Hong Kong listing instead. Uh, And and obviously the third wave will be the existing listed companies coming back to Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. I think think that, that would certainly be politically correct, I would say, but whether it would drive a lot of liquidity in the local market, I'm not sure. I mean, we've seen, plenty of examples before of companies that are listed elsewhere wanting to seek a secondary listing in Hong Kong, and the liquid there is no liquidity, right, Coach, Veil, vale, et cetera. So, so I think it's yet to be seen whether uh, companies that are trading, like Alibaba, are trading $3 billion U.S. dollars a day in the U.S. market, if they got dual listed in Hong Kong, whether they will trade you know as much or whether they will shift the liquidity from the U.S. market to the Hong Kong market. I think that's still to be seen. I think the other one that you know, Pru have an, uh, you know, opinion on this corporate governance. Because uh, in the U.S., for example, a lot of the indexes are, are, are coming out, s and saying that they won't accept uh, uh, dual-class stocks to be, uh, to be admitted into the indexes. Uh, whether, you know, the MSCI or the Hang Seng will adopt the same philosophy is yet to be seen. Uh, my guess is, uh, if I have to make a prediction, my prediction is that they probably will allow them to be listed continued. To, be, uh, to, to, to get into the indexes. Wow. Um, okay. but uh, But obviously, uh, you know, BlackRock and other mutual <laughs> fund may have their opinions and-
1: Yeah, I, mean, I was gonna ask you about this because it's interesting that as Hong Kong does this, there has been this pushback in the West a little bit, not only with the indexes as Alan alluded to, but also um, we've seen more, a few more, not a lot more, but a few more sunset clauses put into mm-hmm. bylaws where, where it sort of says over, you know, there's an expiry date on these dual class shares, you can't take them with you. Um, Those kinds of clauses we're starting to see. You can't be thrilled about this development, but I want to hear (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
3: BlackRock is a firm that's much supporter of one share, one vote. Mm -hmm. And I think what really hasn't been done in Hong Kong is to ask the question of why have all these companies gone to New York to to list? Is it just because of dual-class shares? Less than 50% of the Chinese tech companies that have listed in the U.S. have dual-class shares. Baidu is one share, one vote. What they all have in common is they're all incorporated in the Cayman Islands. The Cayman Islands has basically no corporate governance standards. If you then go and list in the US, the US laws say, you can just bring your governance furniture from your place of incorporation, and you just have to use that in there. You don't have to comply with US corporate governance standards. So if you're going to have secondary listings, and have Baidu here mm-hmm. and not have an annual general meeting, I just think that's appalling. Interesting. Now, if you say to Baidu, well, you can have a secondary listing here, but you have to have an annual general meeting, they'll say, why bother coming to Hong Kong? Mm-hmm. I really don't think it's going to have an impact. Um, Sina.com, one share, one vote until a few weeks ago, um, <laughs> there was a proxy contest, you know, it's listed in the yeah, US, right. and they didn't like it. Overnight, they issued, I think the, the, the founder had about 5 or 6%, mm-hmm. overnight, Control went up to over 50%. That's issued dual class shares just like that. No shareholder approval because you don't need shareholder approval in the Cayman Islands. So do we want the signer.coms having a secondary listing here? Um, JD.com, no meetings, never had a meeting. Not required to have any shareholder meeting. Uh, Only has a a quorum is only for a director's meeting if the CEO's there. If the CEO doesn't turn up, there's no quorum for a director's meeting. 95% threshold to change the constitution. I don't think this is what Hong Kong wants mm-hmm. and this is a real problem and I don't think it's been thought through properly, particularly around the secondary listings. And I talk to senior people um, and when I talk about these companies not holding um, oh. shareholder meetings, they go, what do you mean they don't hold shareholder meetings? <laughs> they don't hold shareholder meetings. <laughs> um, the US is slightly is different from Hong Kong. It's a very litigious environment. Right. When you operate mm-hmm. in the US, you are mm-hmm. so scared of having your pants sued off you that it, it's a check and balance. We don't have that time, same system here. I'm not advocating that as a, as, a, as a good system. I would prefer a sound governance system uh, where shareholders have a voice right. and there's a fiduciary duty for the board to and, and senior management to act in the interest of, of shareholders. Mm-hmm. And that system doesn't, doesn't support that. So I'm not as So supporter. if it
1: happens, aside from obviously- Oh, and it will happen. And Sorry, it will happen. Yeah. <laughs> so when it happens, um, you will obviously you know, continue your campaigns indiv- with individual holdings, but is there some broader thing, as Alan's talking about, that you will look for, whether it's to sort of work with the indexes to try and find a way to contain it yep. or other broader ways sure. to contain the effects of it?
3: We've got a public document out there about the whole index mm-hmm. um, issue because when – so we manage indices on behalf of clients. The client actually selects which index they want to manage to. Then they go out to the index providers and say, well, Vanguard, BlackRock, or State Street, basically. So when it comes to the index, we don't have a view. In fact, well, our view is that the index should represent the market. And if that includes classes with no voting rights, don't hold um, annual general meetings, it's they've got to be there to represent the market. Okay. Now, we will have clients that don't want to invest in companies that have no voting rights. So therefore, there will be an index, which will be the whatever yeah. is X, index X, companies that have no voting rights. Just the way that they can... In, uh, we have clients mm. that don't want to invest in tobacco companies. Mm. So they can go into the MSCI, world ex-tobacco or ex-controversial mm. weapons, ex-abortion drugs, whatever mm-hmm. criteria meets their beliefs. Mm-hmm. So that's how it will, will work for us. But our, our view on the index providers is the, the index should represent uh, the market. And I think the, their clients, who are basically the big pension funds, um, are really pressuring them. I've been in a couple of meetings with the index providers and and their clients uh, to make these to to exclude these companies. Uh, FTSE's already made an announcement right. for some level of exclusion. Right. MSCI is still doing a consultation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not quite sure where S and P at the moment. So if that does go ahead and and you get Hang Seng excluding them again, I I, I don't know how it's going to impact Hong Kong, but I just don't see it mm-hmm. being a um,
2: well, but, but to be enough. fair, right? If a company who's already listed in the U.S. were to do a secondary listing in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. they are still facing the same litigation environment in the U.S. in the first place.
3: Yes, but right. not if you're a Hong Kong shareholder.
2: Correct. You no, won't have exactly.
3: the So, if you buy those shares in, in the Hong Kong market, you will not have the same rights right. as, as if you had bought them in in, right. in the U.S. So
2: I mean, yes. that's my point. Also. It, it will drive some liquidity differences. Mm. Maybe maybe because Blackwell will buy in the U.S. stock counter and not buy the Hong Kong counter, or some other fund mm. will do that. So, so I think it's ultimately there's some investor differential and in choices mm. Mm. between the different exchanges.
1: Janice, it affects you in quite a different way, in the sense that it potentially gives um, startups and competitors mm. access to capital in your home market and maybe pulls capital away from you in some ways. I mean, are you? How do you? How are you thinking about this? This yeah, development? Yeah. And- so,
4: well, first of all. As a stakeholder of the Hong Kong market, of course, this flexibility of the dual-class share listing um, is generally, you know, welcomed from TMT, especially startup sectors, right? It gives, especially founders, management, some level of control. Especially now, if you look at even creative companies being part of TMT, then it, a lot of the times investors want to invest in that founding team, who is really the creative, you know, brains behind it. But I mean, I, I you know, love what Prue just said because it gives the other side of the coin, mm-hmm. which is, you know, as I, I'm actually on both sides, as as a sort of a startup company as we did with, with VIEW, of course, I'm, I am really welcome this flexibility. And of course, if we do go down a path and want to consider listing, of course, we want to support the Hong Kong market. Now, I also sit on um, the board of an internet, mainland internet company that just got listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Now, I'm super conscious about the fiduciary duty differences between Hong Kong listings. So again, consciously, as I accept that role, I am very conscious of, of my my duty in that regard. Um, flip side of the coin, as an investor, I'm every, I'm for everything that Prue just said because. <laughs> so I, I find it really in, the interesting dynamics is I'm, I, I guess especially for those of us who are in the TMT sector, it brings with it you know the opportunities as an investor. You want to have those rights, but I, I, I agree with Ellen as well, which is, well, for companies who do list in in, in both markets, then I think there will be differences on as. If the market and consumers or investors understand more what this dual listing means, these will become more um, transparent, but I think yet if we have unless we have Prue talking to everyone, I think um, a lot of investors are still going to be grappling with if they because some of these names are big names and they want to have the opportunity to invest into these companies in, in the home market. So I'm I, I actually from a startup point of view, I'm much for from an investor point of view. I think <laughs> definitely some of those governance. You're wearing too many hats, in. I think. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
5: But um. I, I do think there is a philosophical issue here. Uh, I, I, I disclaim. Uh, practically, I think it's a good thing for Hong Kong. Uh, but as a long-term investor, uh, I think control governance has really important issues for us. Mm-hmm. The philosophical issue is, uh, you know, people get old. Everyone gets old. Even you are very smart at certain age. After you know a certain age, it will not be. And even the founder group within certain time. They grab the opportunity, they create a great company. But why, I, I just don't believe this would sustain 60 years, 70 mm-hmm. years. And at later stage, what's going to happen if you have this, this, those, those voting uh, powers? And even today, they don't hold shareholder meeting. If things go wrong, what can, can you do? So I'm actually torn. I, I, I think this is a higher ground of the corporate governance issue. Uh, I also agree, in, in China, there's not enough uh, legal um, uh, means that mm-hmm. you can pursue there even directors there is no f- such you know fiduciary duty per se in in, in China and, and therefore you know you know as e- either you stay private you can decide whatever you want as a public company i i do think you know there is a there's is a issue for if, if people cannot vote against certain things mm-hmm. or well, yeah i mean right.
1: I, I tend to agree with that I, mean, I think we are very very much advocates of one share one vote as well but absent that it's why we not only advocate for it, but predict that we'll see more sunset clauses to address oh, the very point which yeah, gives for, yeah. gives the entrepreneur a 10year <clears throat> runway to kind of build the business they want in the public markets but then has to kind of let go at some stage yeah. before, you yeah. know um,
2: well but I think also in a way that I mean people I mean obviously are doing arbitrage all the time right if you have a global standard, everybody has one vote, one share, everywhere in the world, right, everybody has the same litigations environment, then market will be efficient. But absence of that, people tend to do a little bit more kind of arbitrage and, you know, maybe fortunately or unfortunately, it always goes to the lowest common denominator, right, which is what's happening, right,
1: so. Yeah. As you can tell, it's a debate that probably will rage on for some time. That's all for this week's episode of The Exchange. Breaking Views podcasts are produced by Ben Kellerman, Ryan Warner, and Freddie Joyner, with some special help this week from Sharon Lam and Alan Lau in Hong Kong. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes or your favorite podcast service to stay up to date on The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at JGFarb. Until next week, I'm Jeff Goldfarb.